Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 7th, 2023. I've always loved having a uh astronomers on the show uh we've had martin reese the astronomer royal i think in the united kingdom he's an old friend of mine uh he's also the author of on the future prospects for humanity uh last time he was on the show last year he talked about the limits of science and why the universe might be too complex for humans to ever understand uh my guest today is another astronomer, a US-based one, uh, David Halfand. He's been on the faculty at Columbia University for 35 years. Um, and he has an interesting new book out. He's been trying to trace the history of the universe through atoms. He has a new book, The Universal Timekeepers, Reconstructing History Atom by Atom. He's joining us from New York City. Uh, David... Um, I'm guessing you know Martin Rees. Is he right that we uh, we don't have all the information to make sense of the universe? Yes, I've read Martin's book. I know Martin very well. Uh, and Martin was part of the inspiration for this book because when I was on leave at Cambridge, uh, I was asked to give one lecture for an entire year and the lecture was on the subject of this book. And every time I've seen Martin since, and that was 25 years ago, he's brought up the topics that I, I discuss in the book, so he really liked it. We certainly don't have all the information we need now to understand the universe. We understand four and a half percent of it. The other 95.5 percent is mysterious in two levels of mystery. There's the dark matter, which we're quite confident exists as some form of mass that has gravity. And then there's dark energy, which we don't understand at all. So we're a long way from understanding the universe, whether it is in fact too complex for us ever to understand, I think that's a hard uh, question to answer. And what's your sense? My sense is we will understand it to the limits of our ability to understand it. And I'm not sure we'll know if we don't understand something beyond those limits. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm sensing not a, a great deal of optimism there. Uh, I'm a big admirer of Italo Calvino's book, uh, Mr. Palomar, about a man who was always looking out at the world through telescopes. What does it take, David, to make a, a, an astronomer like yourself or Martin Rees? Are you always looking? Well, I actually am not fond of being on isolated mountaintops and staying up all night. So I actually use radio telescopes and X-ray telescopes. Radio telescopes uh, can observe all day and X-ray telescopes are in orbit around the earth. And so one can use them anytime one wants to. But certainly it's a subject, perhaps more than any other in science, that's driven by observations. We're far too unclever to figure out what's there a priori. All we have to do is look to see what's there and then attempt to understand what it is. Is there a degree of irony, David, in the fact that you and as, as an astronomer in this new book are, are looking at atoms? As, as, as the book suggests, they are unfathomably tiny, at least for us humans. It takes 
15 million trillions of them to make up a single poppy seed. So how can you actually look at them? Ah, well, we've gotten very clever at that. And we can not only look at them and count them, but we can look inside them and use their internal structure uh, in the service of forensics uh, to understand history. I think it's very related to astronomy because astronomy is unfathomably large distances, times, and masses, and atoms un unfathomably small distances, times, and matter. It's just being comfortable with things that are very far removed from anything we can actually appreciate with our limited senses. David, I, I was never very good at physics at school, so treat me as an idiot, as the idiot that I actually am. Um, what these are so small these atoms I, I think i can understand that but why do they matter what is so essential so foundational about atoms so the greek word for atoms was atomos and it meant uncuttable it's say you have a piece of wood and you cut it in half and you cut that in half and you cut that in half it's not crazy to think that you'd get down to some smallest unit that was the smallest possible particle of wood. This was just philosophical speculation, of course. They had no way of making measurements as we do today. And we now know that wood is actually made up of molecules, which are combinations, very specific combinations of individual atoms. And we also know that atoms are not uncuttable because we can deconstruct them and pull their pieces apart and examine them. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what it comes from. It comes from the smallest possible unit of a substance. We are speaking with David Helfand, uh, the author of The Universal Timekeepers, Reconstructing History, Atom by Atom, one of the most ambitious, certainly titles of a book I've ever come across. Um, David, so what you're saying is that there is nothing beyond an atom. Well, there, beneath an atom. Beneath an atom, yes. Uh, so, so, so well, the, there is. There is, because atoms are made up of several components. There's a negatively charged electron or set of electrons that orbit around a positively charged nucleus. The electrons, as far as we know, are the smallest things that we can find. But the nucleus is very complex. It's made up of particles called protons and neutrons. And those are made up of particles even smaller still called quarks. And we can both observe nature and in our laboratories, deconstruct these, poke them, probe them, excite them, de-excite them. And as such, we can understand their history and use them as tools to investigate our history. Your book is called The Universal Timekeepers Are, and, and you've already acknowledged that we don't know everything about the universe we may not know that much at all it's hard to know for sure but are atoms universal would you find atoms in the farthest reaches of the universe or is this something we simply don't know no in fact that's precisely the point we do find them in the farthest reaches of the universe and we can measure their structure by the way they interact with light and the atoms there are precisely, and I mean to eight or nine decimal spaces, precisely the same as the atoms that we find on Earth. And so they are, in that sense, 
universal, everything in the universe out to 13.81 billion light years, which as far as we can in principle see, because that's how old the universe is, is made of exactly the same 94 atoms that exist on the Earth. So when you're reconstructing history atom by atom, you're not reconstructing history of Henry VIII or George Washington. It's a different kind of history, isn't it? Well, it, there's many uh, vignettes in the book that that uh, that play to different timescales of history. So, for example, the Vikings coming to North America. We now know to the month when the Vikings arrived in Newfoundland and set up their camp, which they had for a few months before they went back to Iceland. And we know that because the sun in 993 AD had an enormous outburst that send all these high energy particles to the earth. They interact with the atmosphere and produce radioactive isotopes of carbon, carbon 14, and beryllium, beryllium 10. Now trees breathe in carbon from the atmosphere and suck up beryllium through their roots. And so the, each ring of a tree is a, a marker of what the environment was like in the year that that ring was added to the tree. And we can look at the wood that was cut down and used to build the shanties that the Vikings built. And we can count the rings from 993 because that's the ring that has this excess of radioactive isotopes because of the solar flare. And we now know that it was in the summer of 1021 AD, exactly 1,003 years ago, uh, that is the year that the Vikings landed on Newfoundland. It's astonishing. You, you note uh, in the book that um, the universe was created 13.8 billion years ago. Is that un undisputed? Is, do, do all astronomers or physicists, do they all acknowledge that that's true? Yes, we have several different independent methods of determining that number. And they all agree to each other to three or four decimal places. So that's the current consensus in science. Now, of course, the usual question that follows that is, what was there before the universe? Exactly. You yeah. knew exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> that's right, because I've done this a few times before. And the answer is, the Big Bang creates space and time. And so it's like asking what 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 was there before time and what was there where? Well, there was no space, there was no time. So you can imagine that the universe happens over and over again, and we just live in the latest incarnation of it. It extends an infinite time into the past and an infinite time into the future. Uh, but the current incarnation of our universe, we're quite confident, came into existence with space and time and matter and energy all produced 13.81 billion years ago. You've heard all the questions, David, so I don't suppose I'm going to be able to surprise you with anything. But, And I'm sure you've been asked this one many times before. Do we have any reason to believe that we are, we in this the universe, this particular universe that was created almost 14 billion years ago, that we're just a sideshow, a uh, a footnote to a footnote to a footnote within something unimaginably infinitesimally larger, more complicated. Are you asking, are we alone in the universe? 
Uh, is that the next question? I, I, I hope I'm not asking that because I think that's, even for me, that's a bit of a dim question. Uh, and you certainly, um, oh, maybe we can get to that one, but more. Yes, what we are. That, what, 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 let me let me rephrase the question. What's what is your sense of the place of the universe in in this bigger thing that existed before it, or after it, or between it, or alongside it? Well, I'm a little conservative, so I actually constrain my uh, investigations to this universe, which is 27 billion light years across. It's, it's enough to keep me busy. Uh, many of my colleagues, however, uh, believe in the multiverse, including Martin Rees. Yeah. And, and the multiverse, in the multiverse, there are a large number or perhaps an infinite number of independent universes. Ours is just one of them. It has three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. One can imagine universes with different numbers of dimensions. Uh, ours is made of this kind of regular matter which makes up four and a half percent dark matter which makes up another 27 percent and dark energy which makes up the rest other universes would have different ratios for these numbers in many of these universes things might be pretty boring you might never get stars and galaxies and things like that because they might have different laws of physics in our universe obviously we can measure what we measure we understand the basic ways that particles interact with each other matter interacts with each other it the universe expands at a rate sufficient uh that it has time to build galaxies and to build stars and to build planets and on at least one of those planets the molecules came together in such a way to create a species that's able to contemplate these things we are speaking with david j halfen the author of the universal timekeepers a remarkable conversation for me, uh, mind-boggling, head-spinning in the sense that uh, these are such huge subjects, so unimaginable for most of us. Only men like David Halfand and Martin Rees are able, I think, to make sense of it. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, um, for supporting the show. going to run uh, an ad for that, Liberties, and then we'll be back with David to talk more. Universal Timekeepers, atoms, and reconstructing the history of the universe atom by atom. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with David J. Helfen, the author of The Universal Timekeepers, one of America's leading astronomers. David, uh, not everyone will be watching. Some people will be listening, so some people won't be able to see you. You have the manner certainly the look of an Old Testament prophet of one kind or another. How does your work and your theories and this idea of reconstructing history atom by atom, how does it reflect on traditional religion? Does it suggest that it was all nonsense, an old wives' tale, or, or, or might there be something in it in your view? Well, in my personal view, 
uh, no. And what I do is quote Pascal and Laplace. Laplace had a theory of the origin of the solar system back around 1800 in that it formed from a swirling cloud of gas and dust left over from the formation of the sun and the planets condensed out of that. A remarkably modern theory, which is very much like what we have today. And he was explaining this to Napoleon and Napoleon said, but, but where is the creator in your story? And Laplace said, I have no need of that hypothesis. Meaning what? Meaning he was constructing a model that was in principle testable, perhaps not in 1800, but certainly testable today, of how planets came into existence. And it was through purely natural phenomena of galaxies, of gravity and matter and the interaction between atoms and molecules and how they stick together. And it didn't require any supernatural forces for this to happen. I've talked to Martin about this. Martin, uh, I, I don't think is like you much of a believer, but there is a certain, I don't know if I'm using the right words here, metaphysical quality to the kind of investigations you do, isn't there? Does it, 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 it must sometimes challenge your materialism even if you're not quite sure how, maybe in an almost an aesthetic sense, because what you're looking at is such a sort of deep beauty, so different from how we think about our day-to-day -day lives. Well, I agree it's metaphysical, and in the literal translation of that, meaning beyond the physical, because our experience, our full set of experiences, comes to us through our five senses. So the range of colors we can see, for example, are limited, enormously limited, by the three chemophores in the cone receptors in our eyes. So we can see colors from the violet part of the spectrum to the red part of the spectrum. That comprises precisely one out of 60 octaves that the universe sends us. And we are completely and totally blind to those other signals coming from the universe. Now, not all creatures are. Bumblebees, for example, uh, can see ultraviolet light, and they indeed navigate by ultraviolet light. Uh, rattlesnakes and other pit vipers have little sensors under their eyes that can detect infrared radiation, and so they can see a bright glowing mouse in the desert at night when it's pitch black outside and their eyes don't, are no, of no use whatsoever. But what astronomers have been doing for the last 75 years is trying to open the windows on these other 59 octaves of the spectrum by building new kinds of telescopes and instruments, cameras that allow us to observe what the universe is telling us in all those other colors that we can't see and translating into that one little narrow band of color that we can see. So that's, and that's just your eyes. I and mean, we can go to sound and touch and taste and smell. They're all just chemical signals and they're very limited. So for example, smell, we don't smell carbon monoxide, right? And carbon monoxide is deadly. If, if, and, we, and yet we have no receptor for it. And you think, well, that's a big mistake. Evolution made a mistake there. But no, it didn't, because over the first 300,000 years of our existence on Earth, there was no source of carbon monoxide. There were no car exhausts or gas stoves or anything else, the way people die of carbon monoxide poisoning these days. And so there was no evolutionary advantage to being able to smell the molecule carbon monoxide, and therefore we can't. So we're completely blind, or in this case, smellless, uh, to that experience. So the things that we study, both on the tiny scale of atoms and the large scale of the universe, are indeed metaphysical and beyond our physical experience of the world. 
but they're not beyond the ability of our mind to probe. And that's what's interesting. What did writing this book and thinking about reconstructing history atom by atom teach you about us as, as humans? You suggest that on the one hand, we're rather limited. We don't experience the universe in ways that other creatures do. On the other hand, we have science which enable us to both recognize that and perhaps even develop it. So what does this tell us about ourselves? You, you, you suggested earlier, you, you were thinking that I was going to ask you the question, are we alone in the universe as, as humans? I guess that's in a sense the subtext of the question. Well, we're certainly alone as humans, whether we're alone as life forms is, is a, a much more interesting question. Which right, that's what I meant. I don't know the answer to, but, but people are working on that. Uh, whether we'll find out in the next 10 years or the next thousand years, I'm not sure. And it's a an, whole interesting subject on its own. But what, what getting into this book taught me is that we're just really clever. That once we understand the way some aspect of the universe works, and in this case, the way atoms work and atomic nuclei work and electrons work and how atoms interact with light, that we can apply it in very clever ways. So for example, Maize, corn, which we call corn now, maize uh, was first grown in the highlands of Mexico, south of Mexico City, uh, 8,000 years ago. There was a plant called Teosente, which had you know a few little kernels on a, on a stone about this big. And the indigenous people there learned to crossbreed, and they grew bigger ears with more kernels and bigger ears with more kernels. And by 6,000 years ago, we have corn cobs in caves in this part of Mexico that we know they were cultivating this crop. It's a very useful crop because it has lots of starch, has lots of protein, it's, it's, it's extremely valuable. But it turns out that corn breathes air and starts its photosynthetic process in a way that's slightly different from all the other plants that grow in temperate parts of the earth. Corn requires four carbon atoms to join together in a chain before the photosynthetic process can start. Whereas most trees and grass and blueberry bushes and tomato plants and things like that only require three carbon atoms in a row. This means that the so-called C3 plants discriminate heavily against the heavy isotope of carbon, carbon 13, because they only need three carbons and they just snatch the three fastest ones and put them together and they're all carbon 12s, normal carbon. But C4 plants like corn are a little more patient because they have to wait for four carbon atoms to line up. And so they take a little more of the carbon 13. And then of course, that means the plant, the corn, has more carbon 13 than things like blueberries. But that means that if you start eating corn, then your bones have more carbon 13 than if you just eat blueberries. And so by using this technique, we can track the migration of the cultivation of corn from south of Mexico City to New England over the course of several thousand years as different tribes of indigenous peoples learned to cultivate corn and to put it into their diet. And so, for example, in Ohio, we have skeletons, which we can date with carbon-14, so we know exactly when they died. And we can look at the carbon-13 to carbon-12 ratio. And for thousands of years, it was there was none, there was no corn in the diet. And within less than a hundred years, it went of corn in the diet. 
So we can reconstruct the history of agriculture in all of North America, and that's just one example. We can do this all around the world with other plants as well, by simply inquiring as to what the exact atomic composition of the, in this case, the bones uh, contain. Somebody, some people might be listening or watching, Dave, and thinking, if, if we're really that clever, why are we destroying the planet? Why are we killing off all the other species or seeming to kill off many other species? I can explain global warming and all the threats to the environment and the destruction of our flora and fauna. What, what does your book teach you, perhaps warns us or perhaps encourages us in terms of reconstructing history in the context of our current um, environmental crisis? Well, in fact, uh, the way we are aware, scientifically aware, if not yet politically aware, of the seriousness of the global warming crisis is from reconstructing the history of the planet over the last several hundred thousand years and seeing how as carbon dioxide goes up and down in the atmosphere, and we can measure this very precisely by analyzing the little air trapped in bubbles of Antarctic and Greenland ice caps, um, we can reconstruct the temperature history, the precipitation history, and the climate around the world by, by looking at these things. And that's how we know that when carbon dioxide goes up, the temperature of the Earth goes up. This has happened naturally in the past on timescales of tens of thousands of years, it's happening now on the timescale of tens of years, and that sudden shock to the system is not likely to be good. I think what it tells us is that science is, you know, has a very limited uh, scope in some sense. It doesn't deal very well with human beings. It deals really well with the material world. And we've learned to apply a whole sociology, not just a set of techniques, but a whole sociology to advance our understanding of the way the physical world works. We have been far less successful, uh, and, and I think most scientists don't even try, to understand the way the social world works. And this was not a problem for the first 300,000 years of Homo sapiens existence on the planet. It's only a problem now because there are 8 billion of us. There have never been 8 billion of any large mammal on the planet or dinosaur or anything else in the past. And it's the stress that we're putting on the finite resources of the planet because of the large population that is making all these uh, problems like the mass extinction of species and the global climate change come to the fore. You said science doesn't deal well with human beings. How, how well do human beings deal with science? Well, recently I must say that's pretty depressing too. We live in a world of alternative facts and everyone seems to think that democracy means that everyone is, has the same right to their opinion of what the world is like. Uh, the world, I strongly believe, exists independent of us. There is a real, actual, factual, material world out there, and we can either choose to investigate it and attempt to build models to explain it and predict it, and predicting the future, of course, makes one's life easier, uh, or we can just settle into our own individual interpretation of the way reality is that has no connection to the real material world. And unfortunately, a lot of our society is in that mode these days. Yeah, your last book uh, was called um, uh, yes. 
survival uh, guide to the misinformation age. Right, yes. survival guide to the misinformation age. And one of the things that I guess intrigues me or worries me is, on the one hand, you're not alone in in our in, in analyzing our own age as the misinformation age, particularly when it comes to science. COVID, global warming, we've done many shows on that. And on the other hand, we have these remarkable tools that you're manifesting in your new book, The Universal Timekeepers, that allow us to reconstruct history atom by atom so that we, we can be fairly sure about the $14 billion history of the universe. Uh, how, how do these things exist side by side? There's a certain surreal quality to it, isn't it? Well, the thing I think that we're leaving out here is that the organ that we have that allows us to investigate the universe atom by atom is a very complex organism. There are a hundred billion neurons in a typical human brain. Mm. Each of those neurons has a thousand to 10,000 connections. And as a consequence, it's capable of remarkable things. And we're not even close to understanding how it operates. And of course, how it operates depends on how we interact with each other socially, politically, economically, and in every other way, as well as in the scientific way. So the scientific approach uses one feature or a set of features of the way the human brain functions. But most of the time, even scientists aren't using that part of their brain. They're interacting with people the way everybody else interacts with people and they're developing ideas and uh, forming opinions and forming misinformation and spreading misinformation the way anyone does. We did a show with a Columbia University colleague of yours from the neuroscience department who argued, and I don't think he's alone in making this argument, that the human brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. Is there some truth to that? And what does that suggest about us? Someone has given this this thing which is more complicated than anything in the universe but as you suggest we barely scratch the surface in terms of its potentiality it's like having a an aston martin or a rolls royce and driving it at about half a mile an hour <laughs> well it's certainly the most complex thing that we know of in the universe i wouldn't go so far as to say it is the most complex thing because there could be lots more complexity out there that we don't yet understand i mean under the ice in enceladus and Europa, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, there could be complex life forms living there, uh, let alone we extend to the hundred billion stars in the galaxy and the several hundred billion galaxies in the universe. But it's certainly the most complex thing we know about and the most complex thing we attempt to study. And, you know, compared to watching a black hole eat stars 10 billion light years away, that's that's really trivial compared to trying to understand the way a signal pathway works in the brain. You talked about the multiverse. Is it possible that someone's having a game with us and that they've given this, this remarkably complicated instrument that we don't know how to use and that we're being watched? I suppose it's possible. Scientists like to think everything's possible until proven otherwise. And since I can't disprove that, I'd have to say it's possible wouldn't be my first hypothesis. <laughs> what would be your first hypothesis? It's all chance. That it's all act. chance. Yes, exactly. And that we, you and I, and our two, three, eight billion other human beings, we've all been given this thing that we barely know how to use to make nonsense and have Twitter and 
Facebook and the metaverse and wars, but also brilliant scientists like you and Martin Rees? Well, yes. I, uh, I guess I'd have to say that I do believe it's all chance. And a good example of that also from the book is the fact that our molecules, our amino acids are all left-handed. So, you know, your right hand and your left hand can't fit in the same glove. They, they're basically identical to each other, but they're mirror images of each other. And molecules, some molecules come in mirror images as well. And all of the amino acids in all of the life forms on earth, from a bacterium to an elephant to a human, are left-handed. You might think, well, that's pretty weird. How did that happen? Well, it had to be one or the other, right? Right-handed or left-handed. And when we look at meteorites, which come from the primordial material out of which the solar system was made, we find they have amino acids. They have one of these 20 basic building blocks, or many of these 20 basic building blocks of all proteins in life. And they have an excess of left-handed ones. And my late colleague, Ron Breslow, showed that if you start even with a few percent excess of left-handed over right-handed uh, and put them in solution, you quickly run away till the molecules all formed are left-handed. And so that's certainly chance, random chance. Uh, it doesn't have any deep significance as far as we know. It's just what happened when the first molecules formed on Earth and began to self-reproduce, producing what we call life. David, I've asked you some silly questions, which you've dodged intelligently. Um, I don't think I've ever had anyone apart from maybe Martin Rees with more intelligence, more brain power on the show. Finally, uh, this is a book about what we know, the Universal Timekeepers, reconstructing history atom by atom. What don't you know that you'd like to know? Oh, the biggest thing I would like to know as an astrophysicist is the nature or the actual composition of dark matter, which makes up seven times more matter than the normal stuff we're talking about that's made of atoms. And that I'd like to know what dark energy is. And when I say, when I want to know what it is, it means I want to be presented with a model and with observations that allow me to understand and therefore predict the way the universe will evolve, the way things within the universe will evolve. And until we know those two things, we're a little bit handicapped. We have lots of atoms to play with, 10 to the 80th of them or so, um, but we still are missing huge gaps in our understanding of our universe.